welcome back to Truncated Thoughts presented by Prescouter. Our show focuses on big ideas in life science. I'm Jeremy Schmerer, and with me is Dr. Ryan LaRanger. We took a couple of weeks off from recording new episodes, but we're jumping back in today to discuss proteomics. Now, Ryan, I have to confess, I don't know that much about proteomics, but I've seen this topic get thrown around a bit as of late, especially as it relates to things like drug discovery. And I thought maybe you could help us break it down. So perhaps we can start by discussing it at a high level. Sure, absolutely. So, and it's good to be back, by the way. Thank you. Um, what I would say is at the highest possible level, uh, you can think of genomics and proteomics. Genomics, study of the DNA, right? Uh, what genes does a particular cell have? What genes does a person have, et cetera? Proteomics, what proteins are being made that comports with the genetics of a given cell? Now, one might ask, if those are linked, why not just do genomics? The reason is because uh, the way, the amount and the nature of proteins that are made is dependent on a huge number of factors beyond the genetic sequence. So you can have uh, what we call sort of splice variants where a single gene can actually make multiple kinds of protein uh, depending on the environment. Uh, you can also have cases where a gene is turned off, a gene is turned on, uh, mutations and the like. And so what we can do is we can use the proteome or the uh, degree of proteins that are made by a pathogen, by a human cell, by an organism writ large, in order to get a sense of uh, how the cell is actually operating in that moment for a better snapshot uh, at a high level. Does that make sense? It does. I wanted to come back to one thing you said about turning a gene on or off. Can you elaborate on what you mean by that? Sure, absolutely. So just because you have a given gene doesn't mean that that gene is making protein. And beyond that, um, if that gene isn't necessarily making a set amount of protein, it might be making too much, it might be making too little. So you have, let's say, TGF beta, the gene, right? Uh, the amount of protein which is being made from that gene is variable and dependent on a large number of other stimuli or factors. So if you had, you, the, there are um, chronic inflammation diseases, right? Which are one of your genes in the inflammatory cascade, you know, TGF-beta, some of these other factors are just be, there's too much of them being made. The gene is fine, but there's too much product. And so proteomics allows us to look at that. Beyond this, from a drug discovery perspective, a big thing we want to often do is figure out what proteins are interacting with what other proteins, because that's the fundamental backbone of biological investigation. Makes sense. Okay, so yeah, this does influence drug discovery quite a bit and development ultimately. Can you talk a little bit about some of the tools that are out there for studying proteomics? What data is available? How are we using it, et cetera? Sure, absolutely. So uh, for all scientists on the line, I will mention Western blotting first. This is the classic and uh, one of the foundational things in uh, proteomic analysis where when we're talking about drug discovery and proteomics, generally speaking, what we're saying is I'm interested in a particular protein that's key to whatever process is going on, and I want to see what interacts with that protein or how much of it there is, right? 
So just to give you an example of how these proteins are important, COVID-19, right? What do we talk about with COVID-19? The spike protein, right? That's like the huge commonality thing. And so proteomics for COVID, for instance, focuses on the spike protein, just to sort of ground us. So um, Western blots and some of these other technologies depend, generally speaking, on using antibodies uh, made by cells in uh, laboratory conditions, which are program which are primed to target elements of a given protein. And there are a bunch of uh, companies that sell these antibodies. You can get them. And then you, uh, you know, there are a couple of different ways to do this, but the end result is the antibody winds up binding to a piece of paper. You stain for the, uh, or the protein winds up getting on the paper. And then you take the antibody. The antibody has something attached to it, which can then show up on a blot. And then when you develop the picture, the picture is showing you how much antibody is bound to protein, say your protein of interest, and where. So you can imagine, basically, uh, you've, ta you've taken this piece of paper, you run it, or you run uh, protein through it, and so everything is separated by weight, and then your antibody binds the protein if it exists, and the more bound antibody you have, the more protein you have. Now, there's a problem with this just before we move on, which is the antibody only detects an epitope or a portion of the whole protein. It doesn't look at the whole thing. And so if there is a mutation, if there's something else, uh, that antibody might miss that protein or it might not necessarily give you the whole picture. And it's not a truly quantitative measure of how much protein there is, and that can be an important factor. Um, before I move on, and other antibody-based detection methods use a similar thing. Uh, I'm about to talk about something else, but before I do, any questions there, or is that pretty clear? It's, it's pretty clear. Obviously, there's some nuance there that I, I don't fully have experience with. I think I was a little more interested in, in some of the, the tools and the equipment required. I think the, the thing that comes to mind is sitting in science class as a, like a high school student and doing like chromatography type, <laughs> type stuff. I mean, <laughs> right. I, it's so for that kind of thing, it's um, scalability. There's a, you can actually scale pretty well for these kinds of antibody based assays. Right. It's just tons of wells, tons of liquid handling. And it's just a matter of you're looking for kind of a yes, no. Is there an antibody? Isn't there an antibody bound? Right. So you can get these big, big sheets. There are a couple of different ways to do it. Um, but you still run into the issue of uh, this is an antibody and we're only finding what we're looking for. Right. So you can't find something else that you weren't necessarily looking for. You have to say out of the hundreds and hundreds of thousands, millions of proteins that exist. I'm looking for these three. Boy, I hope they're the right ones. Now, um, there are some other techniques that have been developed since, and some of them have been in use for a very long time, particularly mass spectrometry, where what you do is uh, basically blow proteins apart uh, and you measure the intensity of the charge of the pieces. And because we've been doing this for a very long time, that allows us to say very exactly what proteins exist in a given sample. And there are some groups recently which have gotten this to the point where they can even do it on single cells, which is very hard, but it allows you to really dig into, for instance, for uh, cancer, it allows you to say specifically in this cell that we've isolated, what is the proteomic state? 
which can often give you clues on how to treat a given sample or how to you know treat a patient hopefully ultimately or uh what phenotype that cancer cell has and allows you to do these other things from sort of a disease perspective the challenge i would say with this space is mass spectrometry is generally considered to be the gold standard because you're seeing exactly how much quantitatively and exactly what it is uh pretty specifically. The challenge is that, uh, or a challenge, there are many, uh, is that you running these devices is challenging and preparing the sample for these devices is very time consuming. And so ultimately what we would like to see sort of in that space are innovations less so on you know the mass spectrometry side it's not a new technology it's not an old technology but it's also not a new technology um and instead there are a number of innovative groups working on methods to improve liquid handling to basically make it so the technician has to do considerably less in order to get this very high quality data which can tell you a lot about protein-protein relationships and the state of disease in a patient. So having the technician do less, I'm guessing, is sort of a, a quality assurance mechanism because there are potential for inaccuracies. Can you elaborate on that? So in part, quality assurance, absolutely. I mean, the fewer <laughs> experimental steps a technician has to do, the better. But a lot of it, um, and this comes to a bunch of different kinds of innovations in the hospital healthcare space, it's really about scale, right? Because if people could do these mass spec-enabled proteomics assays whenever they wanted, it would immediately swamp the technicians and the hospital just wouldn't be able to run the samples the more automated you can make these sample preparation processes, especially as you start incorporating these more high-tech assays, either in the hospital or in a lab which services the hospital, um, the more likely they are to be able to use it. So it's less about just cost and more about operational scalability, where a number of hospitals are saying like, sort of, this is the thing that we would need. And then if you can get it cheap enough, then instead of it being something where they send the sample to a lab where the delay is a little bit longer, you might be able to get to a point where a hospital has that equipment in-house and they can just run the samples. And what that does is it allows the hospital to say, we can give you an answer on this test while you're here, which can save a visit. And that can be a big deal. Got it. So it really sounds like if we were to characterize the future of proteomics, it's largely driven by scalability at that point? Scalability, increasing accuracy, increasing the ability to interpret the data. As the data interpretation is a whole thing. It's um, very smart people spend a non-trivial amount of time on it. And just getting to the point where single cell analysis is more feasible and more scalable. It's just increasing scalability is I think one of the best places for it. Excellent. Well, I think that's a good overview of, of proteomics for the moment, perhaps something we can return to down the road if, if necessary. 
Um, we hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if you're not subscribing already, find us on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. And then join us again next week where we're going to dive into the future of telehealth. Obviously, that's been something that's permeated the headlines over the last 18 months or so. So we'll try to break that down a bit. Until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.